I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, my title of my sermon this morning is Playing Defense. Peter says, Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an accounting for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. This little sentence in the middle of Peter's first letter has always given me trouble. Translated into everyday English, Peter is saying to the people who received his letter that they should always be ready to explain their faith and their commitment to anyone who demands an explanation for such foolishness. And what is more, they should do it without arrogance and with reverence toward God. Peter's word defense means a legal sort of defense, explaining why it is perfectly reasonable and appropriate to believe what you believe, an explanation of the faith of itself and how you do or how you know it is to be true. So what he expects people to do is to explain God's act of salvation in Christ Jesus Number two, how that act is rooted in the promises that God has made to Israel that are now fulfilled in Jesus. Three, to describe in word and deed the way of life that leads from believing in these things. And fourth, to explain their assurance that the saving work of Christ has eternal consequences, not only for believers, but for the whole world. Peter's asking a lot, especially because he was asking it of people who had not been Christians for very long. This letter was probably a letter to be read as the sermon at their baptism. So he's asking people who've been Christians for all of five minutes to be able to do this. Seriously, which of us, some of whom have been Christians for more than half a century, would be able to give an account of those things. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands an accounting for the hope that is within you. Are we ready to do that? Now, when I went off to college, if someone had asked me why I was a Christian, I couldn't have given them an answer. I liked church well enough, and I liked the music, but there wasn't anything about the faith that had lodged itself deeply enough in my soul that I understood why I was a Christian. I wasn't hostile to being a Christian, but it was clear to me that much of the world at my university and the wider world in general was hostile. Really smart people I knew seemed to do without church altogether. I went to chapel a few times that first semester, and the Gothic architecture and the organ were glorious. But the hours of my social life and the lack of friends to go to chapel with soon put an end to all of that. By the middle of my freshman year, I had decided that all that stuff about Jesus and the Trinity made no sense at all. And if it really made any sense at all to be religious, then I needed to become a Jew. I was good with God, 
But the rest of that Christian stuff just seemed really unnecessary to me. Now, a lot of other things happened in the middle of that freshman year, and I, I never got any further than considering conversion. So for the next three years, I would go to the chapel for concerts like the Messiah right before Christmas break and at Palm Sunday and Easter and at finals to pray for miracles on my exams. Whatever I was, it would have been hard to accuse me of being a Jesus follower. And then in my senior year, I took two courses that changed my life. The first was a course on Dante, which convinced me that living life estranged from God was no way to live at all. The second was a course in New Testament history in which the professor outrageously required us to read the entire New Testament during the semester. I thought that was outrageous. But by the time I left the course, I was sure that there were only two choices. Either the whole Jesus thing was true, or it was the biggest lie ever foisted upon humankind. That it was true was the simpler and more sensible solution. Now, almost immediately after my graduation, I started reading seriously about the early history of Christianity, and then came weekly Bible studies and more reading, and by that time I was trying to sort out what to do about my desire to study theology, to teach, and perhaps even to enter the ministry. Decades later, here I am, a professional Christian with years of academic study and research under my belt, and yet this business of giving a defense for my Christian faith and my hope can still flummox me. When I went to college, I didn't have an elevator speech about why I was a Christian, because I really didn't know. Now the elevator, the elevator speech escapes me because I've been allowed to dig deeply enough through the treasures of the faith that picking only two or three of the jewels that I have discovered is just so limiting. It's the reverse of the problem I had when I was young, but it still means that even today I find Peter's instruction difficult. Now, fortunately for you, most people are not called to such a deep immersion in Christian history or teaching. But, and this is a very big but, every one of us is called to know the contours of our faith, to understand what and why we believe, and to live our lives as though every minute of it is lived in the presence of Christ. It is part of what is promised at our baptisms when we promise to continue in the apostles' teaching, in the fellowship, and in the prayers. And these days, we increasingly live in a world which is much like the world that Peter's new Christians lived in. We're likely to be mocked and scorned for that belief. And the profession, to, the, uh, the pressure rather, to join the ranks of those who have no religious affiliation is often greater than any encouragement that we give to one another at church. But instead of thinking about the stranger that needs to hear you, talk about your faith. Think of it this way. Often the people who most need to hear our defense of the hope that we hold within us 
are our spouses, our parents, our children or brothers or sisters, or our dearest friend who sits next to us every Sunday morning. And they will be disappointed and confirmed in their conviction that faith is pointless if we cannot give that defense. Now, I'm realistic and I know that most people have no idea how to go about giving that defense and our discomfort with the idea that we might actually, especially for Episcopalians, have to talk about our faith means that somebody will always shoot back, but St. Francis said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. St. Francis never said any such thing. In fact, he founded the Friars Minor, or the Franciscans, to be traveling preachers from town to town to preach the gospel and to teach the people the faith. So how do you go about giving a defense of your faith? Let's go back to that list of things that Peter expected his newly baptized people to do. The first and second things on Peter's list were to expect people to be able to explain God's act of salvation in Christ Jesus and to be able to tie that to the promises of God which were made to Israel. To do that, you need to know your Bible. That means reading it and maybe even a Bible study. Father Fred and I have an Irish friend who tells his students at least six times every semester that Christianity is not a faith where you can send your brain on holiday. And he is right. We have an, a, faith, a faith with an intellectual tradition that is strong enough that you can stomp on it with both of your intellectual feet, no matter how big they are. It won't break. But you do have to get in there and do the stomping. Imagine it like this. Suppose you went to see a lawyer, and in the course of the conversation, he were to say to you, yeah, I never bothered to take that course in contracts. I thought it was boring. Now, if you were smart, no matter why you were there, you would run right out of his office. Contracts is a foundational course in the study of law, and almost everything is touched by the law around contracts. Not knowing anything about the Bible is like being a lawyer who knows nothing about contracts. Item three on that list was the ability to describe in word and deed the way of life that comes from believing in the Messiah and the promises of God. You've been called to live into that image of God that is within you. That takes practice, a commitment to virtue, to things like gentleness and patience and charity, self-control and courage and generosity. And it takes a desire to follow the leading of the will of God. Those are things that are really impossible to do on your own. You need two things. First, you need the grace of God to assist you. And then you need the grace of a community that is dedicated to living as believers. Now look, we can all think of an example of someone who makes a big show of wearing a great big splashy cross around their neck and engages in the most unchristian behavior imaginable living large and no differently from the world. 
people like that may actually know that they're not living a life that honors Christ, but by their behavior, they persist in making his forgiveness nothing more than a cheap get-out-of-jail-free card. And what they tell the rest of the world is that being a Christian does not have to change your life. But if it doesn't change your life, what's the point? Lastly, Peter wants his new Christians to be able to explain their assurance that the saving work of Christ has eternal consequences for themselves and the whole world. Father Fred said last week that our eternal life begins on the day we were baptized when we become brothers and sisters of Christ. And when we join with Christ in the work of God's kingdom, where all things are made new. When we gather together to worship, when we receive the sacraments, when we pass the peace of Christ with one another, we are given partial visions of the reality of God's desire for all of creation. There should be real joy in our worship and true delight in the little glimpses of God's reality that we know we will find there. Worship is where all of the study, all of the teaching, all of our practice at living the faith is tied together and brought to fulfillment in the presence of God. Think about it like this. Suppose the Titans had a player that really hated practice, and for some reason his contract had been written so that he couldn't be fired for not going to practice and what's more, he had to start on Sundays. So this player only practices a day or two a week. And then he shows up just before game time on Sundays and takes his place on the line. Just how well do you think he will be able to support his teammates? We are called to give a defense for the faith and hope that we proclaim this does not require that all of us become professional Christians. It does require that we invest ourselves in knowing our scriptures and the teaching of our faith. It will require that we live life as though Christ is present in every single moment and that our highest goal is to, limit, to live into the image of God within us and to help others do so also. And it will require a community that helps us learn and grow, that encourages us to be more than we already are, and that helps us see glimpses of the world as it should be when all of creation is restored to be what God intends. In short, it will take a church. Will you not join me in this adventure called church?